Preservationists are often creative, multitasking people, and today's guest fits that bill precisely. Steph McDougall is a preservation renaissance figure, working as a consultant, authoring books, and volunteering her time to preserve her community and save Texas's iconic and historic dance halls. Her work is varied, unique, and fun, so get ready to boot scoop and two-step your way into history on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Steph McDougall. She's the founder of McDoo Preservation, a data-driven, community-driven, historic preservation consulting practice based in Houston, Texas. She holds a master's degree in technical and scientific communication from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and a master's of science in historic preservation from the University of Texas at Austin. Steph is the author of Lighthouses of Texas and a contributor to the Buildings of Texas, Volume 1. She chairs her own city's Historic Preservation Commission and is the co-founder and current board president of Texas Dance Hall Preservation, Inc. Steph, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. So where are we talking to you from? Are you, are you in Houston right now? Yeah, um, I actually uh, live in office um, in between Houston and Galveston. So um, I'm about uh, halfway in between, but South Houston, Texas. Fantastic. Nice and hot there today? Uh, it's not too bad. It's only going to be in the low 90s today, I think. So that's, uh, that's on the cooler side for us at this time of the year. And, uh, you know, I'll take it. Okay, sounds good. It's about the same here in Maryland. So I guess I guess we're even. Um, so we love to talk to people about sort of their path to preservation. And you have a very interesting story in how you got into this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Was this something that, you know, you were, you know, as a kid, you knew you wanted to do preservation or how did it all come about? Oh, gosh, no, I know. Um, this really came about because I have no attention span, I think. Um, preservation is the third act of my career. And I came to it um, through a series of events that kind of led me down this path. But my, uh, my career started out in sales and marketing. I spent a decade doing that. Um, you had mentioned I went to grad school and got my first master's in technical and scientific communication. And that was really the time when I became interested in preservation. I took an intro to historic preservation class and a graduate seminar in the School of Architecture while I was getting my master's. And I knew I wanted to do something with that, but I didn't know what. And I really didn't have a good understanding of how the field of preservation worked. And that was back in uh, the mid nineties. Um, and pretty soon after that, I started swing dancing and uh, for a lot of dancers, once you become kind of serious about it, you travel to different events all over the country. And so I started seeing historic ballrooms all around the United States. And in fact, was at the Hollywood Palladium um, when it celebrated its 60th anniversary in 1999. So I was seeing all these great historic ballrooms and um, 
I'd also had started working for Think TV, the public television station in Dayton, Ohio, where I lived, on a documentary about Ohio writers and poets. And one of our stops was the Paul Lawrence Dunbar House. And while we were there, the docents told us that a person that they described as a paint archaeologist had helped them figure out what uh, color the rooms had been painted when Dunbar lived there. And I just thought that was fascinating that you could have a job doing something as specific as that. And I thought it was really, really cool and kind of filed that away. Um, and I was later, um, a few years later, um, over at the Indiana Roof Ballroom in Indianapolis, um, Indiana. It's this fantastic ballroom that was built in the 1920s. It closed in the early 70s, was restored and reopened in the mid-80s. And um, after the show, uh, I went back to the hotel, um, sitting at the bar with a friend, and Brian Setzer, who had been the headlining act, um, walked in and sat down, and we started chatting about uh, the ballroom and the show. And he said something very pivotal for me, which was, I'd like to do an all-ballroom tour one day, but I don't know if there are that many left. And on the way back from Indiana um, the next day, I started thinking, huh, I wonder how many are left. And that led me down this amateur uh, research path, trying to figure that out um, to the Cleveland Public Library, where they have the entire run of Downbeat magazine on microfilm, which listed all of the big bands and where they were playing um, every week. And I quickly learned that I did not know what I was doing at all. So I had this information. I had no idea um, what to do with it. And soon after that, um, I met my husband. Um, we were making plans for our you know, careers. And I said, you know, I want to be the ballroom expert. You know, I remember the paint archaeologist. And I wanted to be that really niche you know, expert who has this super narrow, I thought at the time, um, area of interest. And so we started looking for places where I could go back and get my master's in preservation because by that time I'd figure out, out how preservation worked and he um, could get a, a better job as an aerospace engineer. And that led us to Texas. Um, he got on at NASA. I went to the University of Texas and it was a really good fit uh, for us professionally and personally. And like you had said, I was already a consultant at that time. So it was pretty easy to just refocus my consulting practice to historic preservation. So most people can't claim Brian Setzer played a role in their path to preservation. This is a, I think this right? is a first for PreserveCast. Now I have to ask, because everyone listening wants know. to know, have you, have you maintained a relationship with Brian Setzer? I never saw or talked to Brian Setzer after no. that. No. Oh, so, that's so disappointing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, that's that's absolutely true. We um, need to follow back up uh, with it. Maybe I, we can get him on PreserveCast. <laughs> can you connect us? We'd love to talk to him. Uh, you know, uh, you are you are welcome to give that a shot. I would be of no assistance whatsoever <laughs> in assisting you with that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like how you actually, you know, so so you, we got this background and the, the dance halls and or not dance halls, but the, you know, the, the, these spaces that you were researching and the consulting practice. And 
Um, what what does work look like on a day to day basis for you? What kind of preservation consulting are you doing now that you're fully involved in this? Sure. So um, I have a really eclectic practice, and so I'm probably not a great example of quote unquote what does a preservation consultant do. Um, I think most consultants specialize in historic resources surveys or preservation plans, design guidelines, tax credits, and I've done a lot of those things, as well as fundraising, Section 106 compliance, you know, some of the other kind of mainstays of preservation consulting. But I get, I just get a lot of really oddball projects, and day to day for me usually involves. Uh, working on a lot of research and analysis. I do a lot of community engagement. Uh, I think I'm, I'm the person who gets called if you've got a really contentious situation and the city's being sued, or you've got a community member who has a restraining order because they've been threatening city staff at public meetings. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that, that I get called in on. I love the contentious projects. I love doing the community engagement and also um, a lot of long-range planning projects. But I, you know, I work with the Texas Association of Museums on projects. Um, I'm, I have in the area of practice working with uh, cemeteries, um, both nonprofits and city governments that are managing historic cemeteries. It's just a really kind of oddball practice. I recently finished something uh, working for a city that I've been working with on and off for about 10 years. And their stormwater management folks needed to document the history of flooding and dam projects, none of which had gotten off the ground um, over the past 30 years because they want to build a new dam. So what I did was uh, take boxes and boxes of all of the newspaper clippings and records and everything and create a digital archive and figure out why they didn't have a dam yet. So, um, it, you well, know, we, it's we might really be able to use your bag. help up here in Maryland. We have uh, some flooding issues and uh, certainly could document yeah, those. Yeah, a couple. Just a few. A couple. <laughs> so, I mean, just fascinating. And I think for people listening who aren't familiar with sort of the, the business side and the consulting side of preservation, it's interesting to hear how, uh, you know, you've made a career following several others, but a, a career doing this professionally. And, and obviously there's a lot of work associated with that. But you're also, outside of this professional piece, very involved in Texas Dance Hall Preservation, which I find truly fascinating. I want to hear all about it. What is, what, well, first and foremost, what is a Texas Dance Hall? So for someone listening to this um, who is not from Texas, like myself, and has never been to a Texas Dance Hall, paint a picture of what they are. So the preservation answer first is that Texas dance halls are mostly a really specific building type. They're almost all wooden buildings with a large open dance floor, and there are a wide variety of roof supports that were used to create that open space. One of the things, one of the character defining features, as we say, that uh, most people would miss if they're looking online to see pictures of Texas dance halls, and there are quite a few photos, um, is that there was often a raised platform around the perimeter of the hall with benches. And that's where parents would put their kids to sleep, either on a little pallet under the bench or on top of the bench. 
And then they, you know, continue to go out and dance while the kids um, slept and the band played. So you can still see that happening today, actually. Little kids learn to dance from their grandparents or parents, and then they're just sacked out uh, while the band's playing. So it's very much a family-oriented kind of uh, venue. And dancing was a huge part of community life in early Texas, especially in rural areas. There was not a lot of leisure time or activities, um, although we see a lot of uh, German and Czech clubs in the center of Texas that, uh, where people had built halls and they would have a shooting club or uh, agricultural society or an athletic club um, because we had a lot of German and Czech immigration uh, to the United States after, or to Texas after it became part of the United States in 1845. Just to jump in here, how many of these still exist? I mean, how many are, are they still in use? I mean, I guess that's a big component of the preservation piece here, but I mean, do you have any sense of the sort of the, the universe of these? Yeah, we're, we are working on creating a database of dance halls and we, Our best estimate today is that out of approximately a thousand halls that had been built over time, we think we have about 400 that are still standing and uh, about 300 of those are in use regularly. So you might have an organization that only has a couple of events in a dance hall each year, the May Fest and the Oktoberfest, for example. Um, but but it is still being used. And then others are pretty, you know, big uh, music venues or they're used for wedding and other event rentals and they're busy every weekend. So there's a wide variety. And we do have we do have a number that are vacant that are, you know, not probably not long for this world. And to that end, we've actually uh, been working with the Texas Historical Commission to create a reference manual for mothballing vacant dance halls to stabilize and weatherize and secure them while hopefully a new productive use, a new owner or funding mechanism uh, can be found for them. Which I guess leads me into sort of, and you're kind of giving us a good segue here of how the organization works. So what kind of work are you actually doing? It sounds like you're documenting, you're coming up with you know, best practices, things like that? Are you providing grants? What's the, what's the goal of the organization and what, what, what kind of, um, you know, mission and, and uh, objectives are you working on right now? Well, we're actually in our 11th year, which is kind of hard to believe. The first eight years were mostly spent on awareness building. I had rolled off the board um, pretty early on and came back on in 2015 And um, we've really focused on building our organizational capacity, number one. We have created, um, and by we, I mean uh, the past president, Deb Fleming, who is now our um, first uh, professional part-time executive director, did all this, (laughs) all this work. So I say we as an organization, but it was really all of her hard work. Uh, But she put together a really great board. We were able to uh, raise enough money to hire her part-time last year, This year, we brought on another part-time administrative assistant, and we've been uh, investing in technology. We now have a donor management system. Uh, We have a quarterly newsletter, and we're doing a lot of partnering with other organizations. We are sponsored by Lone Star Beer. Thank you, Lone Star. 
Um, we have a partnership with the Western Swing Band Asleep at the Wheel, which is doing their third Texas Dance Hall Tour this fall in uh, the beginning of November. And we also have a partnership that we've established with uh, the SPJST, which is stands for a bunch of Czech words that mean the Slavonic Benevolent Order of the State of Texas. And they're the largest fraternal organization in the state and um, have been working with us to identify and help support uh, these Czech fraternal lodges, which are um, around the state of Texas. So we're doing a lot of partnering and we have a bunch of projects going on. I mentioned the toolkit. We uh, just launched a photo exhibit that's traveling around the state. We do a lot of consulting actually with uh, hall owners, um, nonprofit organizations, et cetera. And we have just launched um, this week a preservation fund grants program, again, thanks to the sponsorship of Lone Star Beer. So we have a lot of stuff um, that we have been working on this year that's not ready for prime time that we'll launch next year. But uh, primarily what we're, what we're doing right now is uh, just building our organizational capacity so that we can just provide a lot more services to uh, dance halls and their owners. It's it's really fantastic. It's just so interesting to hear. And and even if people listening around the country don't have, a obviously, a Texas dance hall in their community if they're not living in Texas, they have something like it. And it's such a great model for figuring out how to save a really valuable vernacular resource. I'm curious, what is the public response been? I mean, obviously you've got a beer company involved, so there's a, there's a component of somebody who's, who's bought into what you're trying to do. Um, you know, has the public response been good? And, and also sort of as a follow-up to that, any pointers or advice for people around the country trying to save vernacular resources like this or things that you've learned along the way that you wish you had known at the beginning? Well, I will tell you that um, going to a dance hall is such an authentic Texas experience. And whether you're from Texas or not, um, it, it really is a big draw. It's kind of magical um, when, you know, you've got this young local polka band that opens uh, the show. Kids are learning to two-step. It's all ages, family-friendly by the end of the night, you know, the kids are asleep, mom and dad are out dancing, everybody is caught up with their friends and neighbors. And I think when people experience that, they really get why preserving these places is so important. It's about the community. And dance halls, I think, have a really important role to play in supporting strong Texas communities, especially in rural areas. So I have to tell you that um, there is a romance um, a nostalgia involved with Texas dance halls. And it's fortunately for us, not a hard sell. Uh, the, there's been a really strong public response to what we're doing from the hall owners, um, as well as from the communities and just people, not only in Texas, but really around the country. This Asleep at the Wheel Texas dance hall tour brings in people from I think they had like 29 states in Canada last year. And once you've been here, once you've done it, I think people get it. It's just really gratifying to see people who are not from here, as I'm not, 
really see how special these places are and want to support them. So if people want to learn more about this or they're planning a trip to Texas and they want to go to one of these dance halls and they want this authentic experience, where can they find out more information? How do they learn about that? Well, we have a website, texasdancehall.org. We are working to get a map and a calendar online. Uh, we had those those two pieces of uh, functionality on our website early on um, that are no longer functional. And uh, I will tell you, we are getting ready to update our website. It needs updating. So um, that's one of the things that we're, uh, we're actually working on as a board this year. But um, the Texas Polka News also has a lot of listings for events. And, and I think if you, uh, if someone were to just do a Google search for Texas dance hall and music, a lot of different stuff is going to pop up and it depends on what part of the state they're into. So um, dance halls are, are found uh, pretty widely. And so it's, if you, especially if you're going to central Texas, it's not hard to be able to get to a dance hall. And if people want to learn more about you or they're in your uh, geographic area and would like to hire you, how do they find out more about McDo Preservation? Well, I'm online at uh, mcdo.com, M-C-D-O-U-X.com. Um, I actually work all over the United States, and I have clients that I've never met. I have done a National Register nomination for a historic district where I have never personally been because they had a survey and street view. I, I would say people can learn more about me on, uh, on my website um, if they're interested. And my phone number's there. Um, you know, I give out my phone number all the time so people could call me and, and just ask if they think um, there's something I might be able to help them with. I did want to mention one quick thing, Nick, and you had asked, what have I learned about uh, saving or, you know, working with vernacular buildings? And right. I think, you know, the really important thing is that you have to remember it's not just about the building. You really have to focus on the people and how the productive use of these buildings serves the community. What value does it provide to the community? If you preserve it, then what? Um, right, we, and isn't I that- think we kind of have to get past. Yeah, just the building. I mean, and, and isn't that really sort of the crux of all preservation? It can't just be about buildings. It has to be about what the relevance of that is to people. Right. And I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think, think, you know, I think there was a period of time, um, you know, a couple of decades ago where the idea of preserving heritage for the sake of preserving it was enough. But we're we're not there anymore. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, the other thing I would tell people is that you can't do it alone. You have to find your tribe. As, as Seth Godin says, find your tribe, um, partner with like minded organizations. But to be honest, you have to be willing to carry most of the water. Um, it's great to get other people involved, but if this is your passion and nobody's going to do that work for you. So if, if you care about something, but you're not willing to do the work, I think that's an answer in and of itself. I, I spend a ton of time on this and I don't expect other board members to have that same level of commitment that I do, even, you know, incoming um, board presidents. So it's, if it's your thing, then it needs to be your thing. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, as we move to the conclusion here, we ask the most difficult question of every interview, which is your favorite historic place or building. Oh my gosh. 
So I do have a favorite uh, historic building. You know, we all have our lottery building, right? If we win the lottery, we're going to buy that building. Right. And um, right. And one of my favorites is uh, it's called the True Heart Adrian's Building. It's in Galveston, Texas, just off the Strand, which is a national uh, historic landmark district. It is this little polychromatic brick building with a cast iron storefront. I love it. Um, It's right next to one of my very first preservation projects in Galveston, which was the Save America's Treasures Project. So I saw it all the time and I covet it. And that would be the one if I um, if I um, won the lottery, I'd buy that little guy and um, bring it back into productive use. Fantastic. Love, love the specificity. Sometimes people are scared to, to narrow it down to one and we appreciate that. So Steph, it has been an absolute pleasure. So good to hear about all the great work that you're doing both professionally and sort of uh, personally. Um, love to hear about Texas dance halls. And as you have more information to share and new projects, we hope to have you back again in the future. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.